Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here. Thankful to be back with you this week. Uh, and if you don't know, uh, the reason I was absent for the last couple of weeks is I had my gallbladder removed. And I spoke about that on the Terry and Jesse show yesterday and also joined Terry and Dr. Dan Schneider to share our reactions about the situation with Bishop Strickland. So you can kindly refer to that uh, for, for if you're interested. Um, and regarding Bishop Strickland, I just want to say here that there's nothing controversial in Bishop Strickland's actions. He was under no obligation, legal or moral, to tender his resignation, but he was obedient and did not resist being removed by the Pope. And uh, initially, the only uh, word that he would say in his defense is that he stands by the actions that brought about uh, complaints against him. And the one specific thing he mentioned is he, he didn't implement the provisions of Traditionus Custodes because he could not in good conscience starve a portion of his flock. And I would say if he was really removed for that reason, then there's a good many bishops who should be glad that John Paul II didn't do the same when they failed to implement Redemptionus Sacramentum, or that Benedict XVI didn't do the same when they refused to implement Samorum Pontificum. And that would include a certain former bishop of Buenos Aires. But of course, we'll never likely know for sure. I mean, there were never any formal charges brought against Bishop Strickland. And so although he has been removed from his ministry, he remains a bishop in good standing and a successor of the apostles. And frankly, in my humble opinion, he remains a model bishop. Shortly after the news broke, um, in fact, on the, on the day, Bishop Strickland said he was at peace. And the reason I suspect is, as my wife used to tell the children, Jesus knows. So pray for Bishop Strickland, pray for the church, especially pray for the Pope. Speaking of which, I hope that you can join Terry Barber and myself and the VMPR staff for a uh, rosary and holy mass this Sunday, November 19th, beginning at 4 p.m. at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. We will pray the rosary for the Pope that he would fulfill his ministry to confirm us in the faith. We will pray for the church, that she'll weather the current storm of apostasy and confusion. And we will pray especially for Bishop Joseph Strickland, that he may discern the best course for carrying on his mission as a true successor of the apostles. After the rosary, Holy Mass will be offered for those same intentions, followed by a screening of Bishop Strickland's keynote address from the Defending Our Faith Conference. And, and there's been some talk about live streaming the event. I'm not sure we can keep you updated on that. But if you're in the area, I encourage you to join us in person at Sacred Heart Chapel. And that's this Sunday at 4 p.m. Okay, I don't know about you. Uh, personally, I'm ready for some good news. Uh, when my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, came out in 2017, I did the rounds of the Catholic radio shows. And when I was interviewed on Catholic Answers, Cy Kellett asked if I thought traditional Catholicism would continue to grow. And I had already made it clear what, what I mean by a traditional Catholic. That's someone who can make the act of faith and really mean it, regardless of which form of the Mass he attends. And I told Mr. Kellett, yes, traditional Catholicism will continue to grow for the simple reason that traditional Catholics beget more traditional Catholics, whereas progressive Catholics beget non-Catholics. And the truth of this statement was uh, brought home to me just the other day when I saw a survey of newly ordained priests published by Catholic News Agency. 
See, back in 1965, right after the Second Vatican Council, some 70 percent of the new U.S. ordinands described themselves as liberal slash progressive or very liberal slash progressive. They and those who followed them over the next few years constitute today the, the majority of bishops and cardinals. However, by the year 2020, that number among the recent ordinance fell to 5%. Today, researchers assert that self-described liberal or progressive priests have all but disappeared among the recently ordained, and that 80% of priests ordained after 2020 describe themselves as conservative slash orthodox or very conservative slash orthodox. And that uh, uh, now that's 85% of the most recent crop. Now, of course, the Catholic News Agency is a Novus Ordo source, and they felt the need to quote Father Carter Griffin, who's the rector of St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., who said that young men describing themselves as Orthodox do not necessarily have a preference for traditionalist practices. You know, that's code for the old mass, and that's fine. But what about those who do? See, according to the latest statistics from the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, even amid a worldwide crackdown on the traditional Latin mass because of uh, Traditionis Custodes, the FSSP currently has more priests and seminarians than ever before. And no doubt part of the reason is that Pope Francis confirmed in 2022 that the fraternity could continue to celebrate the sacrifice of the mass and the sacraments and the other sacred rites and the divine office according to the editions of the liturgical books in force in the year 1962. Uh, Joseph Shaw, who's president of Univoce International, said that the expansion of the FSSP's membership and apostolates, um, there are nearly 10,000 lay members of the Confraternity of St. Peter. And remember, that the, the, the Fraternity of St. Peter is in full communion with Rome. Um, and the, the membership has actually accelerated since the publication of Traditionis Custodes, as has attendance at uh, the traditional mass generally and, and at the church where I assist at the mass. You know, Mr. Shaw added that the success of the fraternity and the other traditional priestly institutes and communities is a reminder to our bishops and superiors who see nothing but decline in their vocations that there is another way. And perhaps that would explain why. Here in the United States in 2023, there were as many priestly ordinations for FSSP as there were for the Jesuits. The difference is that the fraternity of St. Peter is growing and the Society of Jesus is in decline. And that's no nonsense. Okay, it's November, uh, and that means it's the month dedicated to the Holy Souls in Purgatory. And tomorrow on the Extraordinary Form calendar, uh, it happens to be the Feast of St. Gertrude the Great, the medieval German Benedictine nun, mystic, and theologian. St. Gertrude meditated frequently on the Passion of Christ. She did many penances. Our Lord appeared to her many times. She had a tender love for the Blessed Virgin and was a devoted to the suffering souls in purgatory. And she died in the early 1300s, but she is the composer of a popular prayer that was long known as a prayer to release a thousand souls from purgatory, or simply St. Gertrude's prayer. Now, St. Gertrude said that Jesus showed her an immense number of souls entering heaven from purgatory as a result 
of her faithful recitation of this prayer, which she was accustomed to say frequently during the day. And she said that he told her that her prayer releases a vast number of souls from purgatory each time it is said. Now, in one of his two popular booklets on purgatory, Read Me or Rue It, uh, Father Paul O'Sullivan presents this prayer in this form. Eternal Father, I offer thee the most precious blood of Jesus, with all the masses being said all over the world this day for the souls in purgatory. However, the form of the prayer that you see most often today on prayer cards and so forth goes like so. Eternal Father, I offer thee the most precious blood of thy divine Son, Jesus, in union with the masses said throughout the world today for all the holy souls in purgatory, for sinners everywhere, for sinners in the universal church, those in my own home, and within my family. Now, uh, I was introduced to this prayer on a holy card uh, years ago that had the title, A Prayer to Release a Thousand Souls from Purgatory. And it said that each time the prayer was recited, a thousand souls would be released from purgatory. However, as per the teaching of Pope Leo XIII, as recorded in the Acts of the Apostolic See, promises to free one or more souls from purgatory by the recitation of some prayer is prohibited by the church. Right? You, there, there are many prayers for the souls in purgatory, but there is no guarantee that that prayer alone was going to release one or more souls. And on further investigation, it turns out that the church never made any such claim regarding the prayer of St. Gertrude in the first place. And the, the cardinal who allegedly uh, endorsed this promise didn't exist at all. Now, in any event, there's certainly no prohibition against the prayer of St. Gertrude in either form, although I suspect Father O'Sullivan's version may be the more authentic to St. Gertrude. And the Church certainly encourages us to pray for the holy souls, and especially in the month of November. Father O'Sullivan says, O'Sullivan? Father O'Sullivan says, who can be in more urgent need of our charity than the souls in purgatory? What hunger or thirst or dire sufferings on earth can compare to their dreadful torments? Neither the poor nor the sick nor the suffering we see around us have such an urgent need of our help. Who can have more claim on us? Among them, too, there may be our mothers and fathers, our friends and near of kin. When they are finally released from their pains and enjoy the beatitude of heaven, far from forgetting their friends on earth, their gratitude will know no bounds. Prostrate before the throne of God, they never cease to pray for those who helped them. And by their prayers, they shield their friends from many dangers and protect them from the evils that threaten them. And I might add that when we pray for people on earth, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that they often fail to cooperate with the graces that are offered to them. But when we pray for the holy souls, we can be sure, we know that the merits of those prayers will be applied and gratefully received. And that's no nonsense. Uh, <clears throat> later on in the program, we're going to take a look at 10 ways for you and me to avoid purgatory altogether, or at least shorten our stay. And uh, some words from the Holy Scriptures, all that and more, when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, as you probably know, I usually share the gospel for the upcoming Sunday in the extraordinary form, and so I shall. But first, I want to talk about last Sunday's gospel, uh, because I missed last week's show, and because it is so relevant to the situation in the church today. So last Sunday's gospel for the extraordinary form was the parable of the seed and the cockle. At that time, Jesus proposed another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a man that sowed good seed in his field. But while men were asleep, his enemy came and sowed cockle, that is, weeds, among the wheat, and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared also the cockle. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to them, Master, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it cockle? He said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said to him, Wilt thou that we go and gather it up? And he said, No, lest while you gather up the cockle, you root up the wheat also together with it. Let both grow until the harvest. And in time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather up first the cockle and bind it in bundles to burn. But the wheat gather ye into my barn. Jesus likewise explained this parable, saying that he who sows the good seed is himself, the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed represents the children of God, and the cockle those of the devil. The enemy who sowed the cockle is the devil. The harvest time is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As the cockle is plucked up and cast into the fire, so it will happen to the wicked at the end of the world. The son of man will send his angels and take away from his kingdom all scandals and those who are guilty thereof shall be cast into everlasting flames of hell. But the just, the faithful servants of God, shall be gathered into the eternal granaries of heaven, and they shall shine like the kingdom of the Father. So a quick note. Cockle is a weed, which until the ear is formed, um, you know, until the weed bears fruit, it looks exactly the same as the wheat. So the cockle, therefore, was only discovered after the ears on the wheat are formed. And the presence of the weeds among the wheat represents evil in the church of God. In order that the apostles and other preachers of the gospel might not lose heart, when, you know, in spite of all their efforts, men would still not be converted, our Lord teaches in this parable that it must needs be that evil grow up in the church alongside the good, and that the complete separation of the evil from the good will only take place at the end of the world, at the final judgment. And this is important to keep in mind today when we're experiencing yeah, several crises in the church all at once. We must remember that God allows evil in the church and that the presence of evil and the works of evil done in the church lie within the providence of God. God, you know, it's not, it's not outside of his plan. God allows evil in his church and for several reasons. First off, simply because he gave us free will. Uh, number two, in order that the sinner might have time for conversion. Number three, that the just uh, can be tested and proven and thereby gain more merit. And four, so that even the wicked can bring glory to God because his holiness and justice are manifested in his punishment of them. Now, when we say that God allows evil in his church, that doesn't mean the deposit of faith. That means that the members of the church who, instead of following her teaching, uh, are at times led away by the false maxims of the world or the flesh and the devil. And therefore, what's evil in the members of the church comes from the devil and his allies and not from the church herself. 
The church sows only good seed by her teaching and her commandments and means of grace, which are which are Jesus's. Therefore, she's holy and leads to holiness all those and only those who obey her voice. So, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come at the end of the world to judge the wicked and the just. Hell is the furnace into which the cockle will be cast, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The just will come to the kingdom of their father, that is to heaven, and will be glorified in body and soul, shining like the sun. Now, those who accept the teaching of the Holy Catholic Church, which was constituted by divine command, and who live according to it, they are the wheat, the children of the kingdom who will live with God for all eternity. We who are by God's grace in the church have this opportunity, which we should cherish more than everything in the world, more even than life itself, because all the things of the world pass away, and this life will shortly end. But God remains, and his word will not pass away. But our Lord foresaw that men, you know, many would refuse to believe his, the doctrines that he taught, or, or even believing them would refuse to live according to them. So after the good seed was sown in the field, the enemy came whilst men were asleep and sowed it over the weeds. That enemy is the devil, the enemy of, of our salvation. He sows this bad seed, Scripture says, while men are asleep. In other words, when the leaders of the church become lukewarm or relax their vigilance, they don't watch, false doctrines and laxity, which is to say, you know, neglect of the means of grace, grow up in the church like weeds. Also, when, you know, we, in spite of the church's warnings and instructions, listen to the voices of our, uh, the voice of our evil passions and indulge ourselves in sin, you know, uh, and shut our ears to God's warnings, you know, whether from uh, the, the warnings that come from God's teachers or, or even uh, shut their ears to the warning that comes from our own conscience, that's when the cockle springs up and grows among the wheat. And instead of, you know, there being the children of God, they become the children of the evil one. We all of us have free will. We have the power to choose between good and evil. And although in baptism we receive sanctifying grace and the guilt of sin is removed, concupiscence, that is our inclination towards evil, remains. And the reason that it is left in us is in order that we may fight the good fight against it. And thus, with the help of God's grace, merit the kingdom of heaven. Satan, uh, the enemy, he sows the evil seed by arousing our evil passions. Sometimes he excites pride and vainglory, and that's uh, where heresy and false doctrine proceeds from. You know, those who think they know better than the church of God. There was, there was Arius and others in the ancient times, those who you know, divided Christ, either his divinity denying his divinity or denying his human nature. And then, then later, as we all know, there was Luther who denied the authority of the church. And through his doctrine of justification by faith alone, without repentance or charity, overturned the very foundations of Christian virtue. And he was followed by many others, Calvin and, and Henry VIII and so forth, and after them uh, by the revolutionaries and, and the atheists. The bad seeds thus sown have been the ruin of innumerable mortal souls. It's produced an immense crop of the children of the evil one, you know, to keep him company, banished from God's presence for all eternity. And my friend, I, we, we ought to be very thankful of the great mercy shown us in being members of the true church of God. 
because the great majority of our fellow men do not enjoy this grace. I'll also say that the, the way of salvation is plain and straightforward. All we have to do is follow it. And we have in the perennial teaching of the church and in the sacraments and the examples of the faith uh, of the saints and of the faithful, we have the means by which it is simple to secure our salvation, if not easy. If the world and all it contains were given to us, it would be nothing in comparison to what we already have. Nothing hinders us from living happy and peaceful lives and reaching our destiny in heaven. It is not so outside the church or even inside the church for those who reject those traditional means. For them, there is not peace and clarity, but disturbance and confusion. And how uncertain is their destiny? Although, of course, God's grace is everywhere and may conquer in the end. You know, there are two kinds of heretics. One that we call formal. A formal heretic is one who's aware that he's wrong, and yet through pride or some other wicked motive persists in his false doctrine anyway. And there's no salvation for him unless he repents and is converted. Another may be called uh, what is called a material heretic, which is uh, one who holds a false doctrine, but genuinely believing it to be true, but who's willing to follow the truth when he finds it. So such a one may be, not, not will be, but may be, excused his error because it's not willful. And there's a big difference between someone in the church who originates a false doctrine and those who come after him, uh, especially those who've been raised in it since childhood. You know, that's why the excommunications of the Protestants were lifted years ago, because they're not Catholics who have embraced heresy, but, but baptized Christians in a centuries-old tradition, even if, objectively speaking, it is heretical. Obviously, false doctrine is not good. It's the truth that makes us free and delivers us from evil. But it's not for you or me to judge the heart of anyone, because only God can do so without mistake. Let us, rather, value our privilege and make the best use of it we can. For what good will it do us to have the right doctrine if we don't live according to it? It's not enough to be a Catholic and not a heretic if we do not keep the commandments. The bad seed is, only, is not only heresy, but immorality of all kinds. The Lord Jesus said, they shall come from the east and the west and the north and the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out. Now, what does this refer to? You know, what does this mean for us today? Simply that many who were educated and brought up in heresy because of their desire for the truth, because of their living up to the light that they have, they may receive the grace of salvation while others in the full light of the truth who have despised it and defied God's law will be rejected and thrown out of their inheritance. And properly understood, the axiom no salvation outside the church means that anyone who is saved is saved only through the graces won by Christ on the cross and communicated to the world by his holy church, especially through the sacraments. But they are, they're deprived of many of the means of grace that are available to the faithful. And as for the faithful, if they fail to cooperate with the many graces and, and benefits of being in the body of Christ, not only will they not be saved, they'll be the more severely judged. 
Our Lord himself said, to whom much is given, much will be required. In other words, if our privilege is great and beyond estimation, so also is our responsibility. The good grain that's sown in our hearts must be cultivated. The good soil of our hearts must be nourished by, by prayers and recollection. The weeds around it must be, must be pulled up by obedience to the commandments and the counsels of the gospel. We must follow the example of our Lord Jesus. We must devoutly receive the sacraments. We must promptly reject Satan and all his works and pomps, all the suggestions of the enemy in opposition to our faith, and all such temptations, so that the good seed may grow and produce fruit ever more abundantly, so that we may in the end escape the fiery furnace where the cockle is burned and be gathered instead into the barns of the Lord to be with him and share his glory and happiness for all eternity. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, uh, this Sunday Gospel for next week in the Extraordinary. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I talked about the weeds and the wheat uh, largely because it's so relevant to the situation in the church today. But as usual, I would like to look now at next Sunday's gospel in the extraordinary form, which continues with our Lord's parables of the grain of mustard seed and of the leaven. Another parable he proposed unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which is the least indeed of all seeds. But when it is grown up, it is greater than all herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and dwell in the branches thereof. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like to leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke in parables to the multitudes, and without parables he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, a quick word for those of us who do not farm. The uh, mustard seed was the smallest seed sown in ancient Palestine. However, from this tiny seed, there grows a plant which can reach a height of 10 feet and which puts forth uh, uh, many branches and large leaves. Also, since uh, just as not everybody farms these days, not everybody bakes, so the leaven. Leaven is a rising agent, like yeast, or, uh, you know, it's a fermenting agent. Um, you know, it's like sourdough, which is mixed with the flour to make the bread lighter and um, more palatable. So first off, Jesus begins with a parable that represents the growth of the church. And the parable of the mustard seed means that just as from a very small seed, there springs up a very large plant. Jesus calls it a tree. Likewise, the church of God would have a small beginning, but would grow until she formed a mighty kingdom, embracing all nations. So in this parable, our Lord foretold of his church that she was to be, to be worldwide, quite literally Catholic. And then he follows that uh, with a, a simile representing the effects of the church. And that's the parable of the leaven, where our Lord describes the manner in which his doctrine of grace would affect the hearts of men. See, the woman represents the church, 
and the leaven, uh, the Christian truth and grace, which, you know, like, well, the meal or, or the flower uh, denotes mankind, both individuals and the whole human race collectively. So even as the yeast lays hold of, you know, one particle of flour after another and then penetrates everywhere until the whole loaf is leavened, so would Christianity penetrate and purify and sanctify the hearts of men and govern their thoughts and intentions until the whole of society at large was raised and sanctified by the doctrine and grace of Jesus Christ. This, this is the debt that the world owes to Christ and his church. Now, to unpack all this, to understand it, let's consider that when Jesus began his public ministry, he made a huge impression. Uh, primarily because he accompanied his teaching with miracles. You know, with a word, he healed all manner of diseases. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk and the deaf to hear and raised the dead to life. Huge crowds gathered around him who brought the, the sick and infirm of all sorts to be healed. And they were healed. And they said, this certainly is the Messiah. This is the Christ who was predicted long ago and whom we've so long expected. And then he gathered around him some disciples who witnessed all these things, mostly poor men, mostly uneducated, mostly fishermen from one neighborhood. And one day he asked them, whom do men say that the Son of Man is? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, and others Elias, and others Jeremiah, or so one of the prophets. But Jesus, Jesus saith to them, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answering said, thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answering said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood hath revealed it to thee. Uh, not, flesh and blood hath not revealed it to me, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to thee that thou art Peter, that is rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he predicted the spread of his church in the world uh, in the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, the least of all seeds, but when it's grown up, it's greater than all herbs and becomes a tree such that the birds of the air can come and dwell in its branches. Right. So in the parable, the kingdom of heaven represents the church on earth. And to all appearances, its beginning was very small. Jesus, who performed all these miracles, was not long after arrested and then publicly executed as a common criminal. Criminal crucified between two thieves. The bystanders cried out, if thou be the son of God, show thy power by coming down from the cross. His teaching was apparently obliterated by his public disgrace. His disciples were discouraged and, and scattered. But Jesus was who Peter said he was, the son of the living God. And his prophecy about the spread of the church, prosperous as it looked at the time, would be fulfilled. And that fulfillment is a most astonishing and very clear proof that Jesus was who he said he was, the son of the living God. Now, just think about it for a minute and remember this really, truly happened. This is a matter of actual history. Twelve simple, mostly illiterate men left their fishing boats to begin teaching a new faith among people quite opposed to them. How are they supposed to, to stand up against the rabbis who'd spent their whole lives in study? And yet St. Peter, by simply relating as a witness the story of the life and death and above all the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, 
converted thousands with his very first sermon. And the principle holds true even in our own times. Pope Paul VI said, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it's because they are witnesses. We all give witness by our lives, but to what do our lives give witness? You know, by their own natural powers and abilities, the apostles could hardly have persuaded anyone. But the power of God was with them. They confirmed what they said by the miracles they wrought through the Spirit of God. And when people saw the finger of God, they had to believe. Unless, hardened by sin and by pride, they were willing to withstand God and take the consequences. In any case, in a short time, a great number were added to the faithful. And so the divine seed, so small at the outset, began to sprout and grow. You know, I said most of us aren't farmers these days, but I wonder if you ever think about seeds. You know, seeds, just a little speck in your hand, but it has an immense power in it. There's a, there's a principle of life put in it by the creator of all things. This principle of life causes it to take into itself substance from without and change it into itself. And, and to increase and unfold itself, you know, what we call growing, until this small seed can become an immense tree, according to a fixed law, which the Almighty has impressed upon it, so that it becomes exactly what he intended it to be. And God put this divine power into the preaching of the apostles and their successors, just as he does into the seed of a plant or tree to, to expand and unfold, gathering up souls all over the earth and in due time uh, to become from this small beginning an institution that will fill the earth to the very last, as, as long as the world lasts. And as he said to the apostles, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And lo, I am with you always unto the end of the world. This little seed germinated and, and, and came up above ground among the Jews at Jerusalem. And a little while after this, the apostles scattered over the known world, preaching and making converts among the Gentiles, that is, people of other nations. And they experienced every kind of difficulty along the way. They went among strangers. They were penniless. They didn't have much skill in arguing, not to mention the fact that they preached a gospel of self-denial, which was hardly appealing to people who lived in a free indulgence of their passions without restraint. Uh, Coincidentally, the very state into the Western world has fallen back into yet again. And what did they do? They just told their simple story, and the Holy Ghost gave power to their words. And then they did miracles to confirm their doctrine. And so the civil authorities rose against them, and they were scourged and whipped and tormented, and last they were killed. They were reviled, and all sorts of false stories circulated about them, but merely human efforts under these circumstances would have been a complete failure. But nothing can withstand the divine power. And so the church increased daily. And after some 300 years, it conquered the Roman Empire and became the great tree of the parable. You know, at first, the church was made up almost entirely of the humble, the poor, the uneducated. But now the learned, the rich, uh, the powerful came and even the, the emperor himself, as the Lord predicted when he said the birds of the air would alight in its branches. And then our Lord continued back to the gospel with the simile of the leaven. And according to the parable of the leaven, the gospel was hidden in three measures of meal or, or dough. 
and those represented three quarters of the globe, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And this leaven brought whole countries into the faith. And the church was to continue to spread because the whole earth is to be leavened. You know, with the discovery of the new world, even more people were converted. And even now, even in the midst of an unprecedented loss of faith, the church continues to grow in Africa, the continent where it all began. And even today, God in his providence has not seen fit to convert the whole world to the faith. And so a great part of the work of evangelization still remains. But over the last three centuries, the church has assumed, you know, unbelievable proportions. And in spite of all the troubles and setbacks, all predicted by our Lord, all taken as part of God's plan, the church is on her way to her ultimate destiny. What an immeasurable, uh, invaluable gift that you and I should be among the favored ones who have received the faith, which is a gift from God greater than if we possess the whole earth. So no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your trials and tribulations, even if you're the very poorest of Catholics, if you reflect for a moment, you can realize that you are far richer than the most impressive billionaire. And your condition is infinitely preferable to his if he have, has not the faith, <laughs> and most probably even if he does have it. Okay, more on this and, and 10 ways for you to avoid purgatory when we come back. Radio, stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before the break, I was talking about uh, the gift of faith and the gift of poverty. Because if we have nothing but the gift of faith, that, that's a grace that makes us more like Christ, who was humble and poor. It, and, and it actually makes it easier to save our soul. Where, and we'll be far richer in heaven, where moth and rust do not, do not corrupt, nor thieves break through and steal. Jesus said, let your treasure be in heaven, and your heart will be where your treasure is. Simply put, don't be satisfied to merely bear the name of Catholic, but be one in soul and in reality. Then when you appear before the tribunal of Christ at the last judgment, you will not be among the number of those who say, wait, I had the faith, didn't I? I mean, uh, I went to Mass from time to time. I received the sacraments sometimes. I, I had good intentions. Only to hear the Lord reply, I know you not. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. No, no, my friend, let's not be but Catholics, you know. I'm Catholic, but. Let's not be Catholics in name only. Let's be good Catholics, keepers of God's commandments, living up to the spirit of our religion, so that on the last day we shall hear the words, Come, ye blessed of my Father, possess the kingdom prepared from you from the, from the foundation of the world. Amen. Okay, in the month of November is dedicated to the Holy Souls. It begins with All Saints Day on November 1st, followed by All Souls Day, November 2nd, which the church sets aside for special masses for all the souls suffering in purgatory. Uh, and because the souls in purgatory cannot help themselves, we should help them by our prayers and sacrifices. And then they, in turn, can and will pray for us. The souls in purgatory uh, are known as the, the poor souls or the holy souls. 
And as I said, the whole month of November is dedicated to them. But what about us? Well, we know that purgatory is a place uh, and state of temporary punishment in the next world. And, and that's opposed to, to hell, you know, which is a place of eternal punishment. Purgatory means purging or cleansing. And it's a place where the soul is cleansed of unforgiven venial sins and or the debt of sins already forgiven, but not yet made up for. This is the constant teaching and practice of the Catholic Church, based on scripture and tradition, and even common sense. Because we know that only people with mortal sin go to hell, and on the other hand, no one can enter heaven with even the smallest sin. Therefore, there must be a place in the next world where lesser sins can be taken off the soul. So those go to purgatory who die in sanctifying grace, in a state of grace, but with venial sin on their souls, or having not satisfied for the punishment still due to their already forgiven sins. Now, somebody might ask, how is their punishment still due to sins that have been forgiven? Well, because even though God forgives your sins, he still requires that you be punished for them, either in this life or in the next. For example, a boy playing ball in the yard breaks a window, and he goes and tells his father he's sorry, and his father forgives him. But he still tells him he'll have to pay for the window with money or chores or whatever. That's why the priest gives you a penance after confession to satisfy for the punishment due to the sins that were just absolved. Now, it's been said that the main punishment of purgatory is not being allowed to see God face to face. But the saints tell us that the souls in purgatory suffer a great deal. Um, St. Saint, Saint Augustine says the fire of purgatory is more terrible than man can suffer in this life. And that's because it's a spiritual suffering. It's, it's experienced in the soul rather than the body. And, and purgatory, by the way, is temporal, which means that the soul spends a certain amount of time there. Right? Eternity is outside of time, but purgatory is not. And so the question naturally arises, how long will I suffer in purgatory? And that depends uh, on the number and seriousness, you know, the gravity of the sins to be atoned for. As Jesus said, Amen, I say to thee, thou shalt not come out from thence till thou repay the last farthing. But when the debt is paid, the soul leaves purgatory to go to heaven and see God and enjoy him forever. And lastly, because purgatory is temporal, it will cease to exist after the last judgment. After that, all souls will either be in heaven or hell forever. Now, we spoke in the first segment about how we can help the souls in purgatory to shorten their stay by praying for them and doing good works for them, making sacrifices for them. And the best possible prayer for the holy souls is to have mass said for them. The Bible says it is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sins. And the church applies to the poor souls the words of Job, have pity on me. Have pity on me, at least you, my friends, because the hand of the Lord hath touched me. Well, what about us? Can we shorten our time in purgatory? Is there something that we can do now to, uh, you know, is it possible to avoid purgatory altogether? Well, in the first segment, I mentioned Father, uh, Father Paulo Sullivan's booklet on purgatory, Read Me or Rue It. And now I'd like to quote from his other booklet, How to Avoid Purgatory the object of which, he says, is to show how we can avoid purgatory by using the means that God has so generously offered to us, and secondly, to show 
that the use of these means is within reach of the ordinary Christian. And in chapter 13, Father O'Sullivan lists 10 ways to avoid purgatory. Number one, in every prayer you say, every mass you hear, every communion you receive, every good work you perform, have the express intention of imploring God to grant you a holy and happy death and no purgatory. Surely, Father says, God will hear a prayer said with such confidence and perseverance. Number two, desire always to do God's will. It is in every sense what is best for you. When you do or seek anything that is not God's will, you are sure to suffer. Therefore, make a sincere morning offering. And as Father says, each time you recite the Our Father, say fervently, Thy will be done. Number three, accept all of the sufferings, sorrows, pains, and disappointments of life, great or small, as coming from God. This is what it means to be poor in spirit, to accept ill health, loss of goods, the death of your loved ones, heat or cold, rain or sun. Bear them calmly and patiently for the love of God and in penance for your sins. Now, of course, you may use all your efforts to ward off trouble and pain, but when you cannot avoid them, bear them manfully. Impatience and revolt make sufferings vastly greater and more difficult to bear. Number four, Christ's life and actions are so many lessons for us to imitate. Okay, The imitation of Christ and the greatest act of his life was his passion. And as he had a passion, so each one of us has a passion. And our passion consists in the sufferings and labors of every day. Pick up your cross daily, he said, and follow me. The penance that God opposed on man for the original sin was to gain his bread in the sweat of his brow. Therefore, let us do our work and accept its disappointments and hardships and bear our pains in union with the passion of Christ. And we will bear more merit, we will gain more merit by a little pain than by years of pleasure. Number five, forgive all injuries and offenses. For in proportion as we forgive others, God forgives us. Number six, avoid mortal sins and even deliberate venial sins and break off your bad habits. Then it'll be relatively easy to satisfy God's justice for sins of frailty. Above all, avoid sins against charity and against chastity, whether in thought, word, or deed. For these sins are the reasons why many souls are detained in purgatory for long years. Number seven, if you're afraid of doing much, do many little things. Do acts of kindness and charity. Give the alms that you can. Cultivate you know, regularity of life and method in your work and punctuality in the performance of your duty. Don't grumble or complain when things don't go your way. Don't censure and complain about others. Don't uh, uh, refuse to do a favor to others when it's possible. These and, and, and such little acts are splendid penance. Number eight, do all in your power for the holy souls in purgatory. Pray for them constantly and get others to do so. And ask all those you know to do likewise. And the holy souls will repay you most generously. Number nine, there's no way more powerful of obtaining from God a most holy and happy death than by weekly confession, daily mass, and daily communion. 
Number 10, a daily visit to the Blessed Sacrament is an easy way of obtaining the same grace. And you don't have to make a holy hour. Just a few minutes kneeling in the presence of Jesus with your eyes fixed on the tabernacle in the certainty that he's looking back at us. You know, just, just for a few minutes to repeat some prayer. My Jesus, mercy. My Jesus, have pity on me, a sinner. My Jesus, I love you. My Jesus, give me a happy death. All of these methods are certain to lessen our time in purgatory. And that's no nonsense. You know, next week we're going to talk about another great means. I think we'll uh, spend a little time talking about the gaining of indulgences for the souls in purgatory, especially, and also for ourselves. The plenary indulgence, which uh, removes all the, uh, the punishment due for sins that are forgiven. All right, that and more next week. And before we go, I just want to remind you again, this Sunday uh, at the Sacred Heart Chapel, I want you to join me and Terry Barber and the VMPR staff for the Holy Rosary and Holy Mass. Okay, this Sunday, November 19th, starting at four o'clock, rosary starts at four at the Sacred Heart Chapel. We will pray the rosary for the Pope, that he would fulfill his ministry to confirm us in our faith. We will pray for the church, that she will weather the current storm of apostasy and confusion. And we will pray for Bishop Joseph Strickland. Now, remember, he is he's a bishop in good standing. He remains a successor of the apostles, but we want to pray for him and pray for the Holy Spirit to help him discern the very best course for carrying on his mission as a true successor of the apostles now that he's been removed from the uh, from his diocese. And after the Holy Rosary, Mass will be offered for the same intentions, followed by an exclusive screening of Bishop Strickland's keynote address from the Defending Our Faith Conference. All right, so you can get more details on vmpr.org. Also, while you're there, you can hit the um, donate button. We do appreciate and count on your financial support as well as your spiritual support. And uh, again, I encourage you to join us in person at the Sacred Heart Chapel this coming Sunday the 19th at 4 o'clock for Rosary Mass and followed by the exclusive screening of Bishop Strickland's uh, talk about defending our faith. All right. Uh, finally, I just want to say thank you so much for being with me today. I am so very thankful to be able to be back with you uh, after my surgery here on No Nonsense Catholic. And I just want to say that until uh, I'm back on the air in the meantime, God bless you and your family. See you next week.